0: Hi, everyone. My name is Miles Surrett, and I serve as the Associate Director of Campus Activities and Events at Clemson University. I'm also happy to be your host for the NASA Leadership Podcast presented by the Student Leadership Program's Knowledge Committee. My guest today is Dr. Corey C. Miller. Corey currently serves as an Assistant Professor in Organizational Leadership at Wright State University. Dr. C. Miller previously served as the Director of Leadership Learning and Assessment at OrgSync and also served as the Director of Leadership Programs at the University of Arizona from 2016 through 2014, overseeing more than 3,000 participants in 10 leadership programs. She created and coordinated the, leader, the minor in Leadership Studies and Practice at the University of Arizona and served as an adjunct professor in the minor for 13 years. Dr. C. Miller is also the author of the Student Leadership Competencies Guidebook, her newly released book, Generation Z Goes to College, Offers insight on the post-millennial cohort in higher education. Most pertinent to our discussion today, Corey is the editor for the recently released issue of New Directions: Student Leadership: A Competency-Based Approach for Student Leadership Development. Corey received her bachelor's degree in communication from Arizona State University, master's degree in educational leadership from Northern Arizona University, and PhD in higher education from the University of Arizona. Welcome, Corey.
1: Hi, Miles. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So let's uh, so let's uh, start by getting to know you a little bit. Um, so what led you into leadership work?
1: Well, interestingly, I can trace it back to being in high school. We had a really great leadership program in my high school, but you had to apply to get in. And as a sophomore, I was so excited that I was finally eligible to apply, and then I didn't get into my own high school leadership program. So by the time I was a junior, I did get in, and I loved every minute of it. And then interestingly, I applied for my college leadership program, and I didn't get into that one either. So um, I just decided to create my own leadership path through college and uh, became an RA and did all the things, uh, student organization and sorority and all that stuff that helped me really uh, get the leadership experience and development that um, I loved and that I needed, and it was super helpful. And um, even early on, I knew I wanted to go into student affairs, which I like the leadership part of that. So for me, it's really always been in some element, Um, a life calling. And part of it is a little bit of saying, I'm going to go back and create programs that are accessible for students so that what I experienced in high school and college by not getting into my leadership program won't happen to the students that I get to work with. But the students who really want it will be able to have the ability to participate. And so part of it was my own desire in connection with the passion of leadership, but also really my own experience that led me to say, you know what, leadership. Development should be for everyone and anyone who wants to participate hmm.
0: awesome so uh, so I am the uh, the parent to a toddler, and i 'm always uh, looking forward to to what uh, what uh, might be around the corner so what 's the most fun thing about being uh, being a parent to an eight year old
1: Oh, everything is the most fun um, I get to be somebody that i don 't normally get to be when i 'm with her. I get to be silly and goofy and uh, all the things that, that just make me laugh and smile. And it's not that I don't, don't, don't do that in my professional life. It's just that it's different, right, the, the kind of work that we do and the kind of fulfillment we get. But um, she's at this wonderful age where, you know, at eight, she loves snuggling and all the cute little kid things. But at the same time, she can – tie her own shoes and pour a glass of milk which is you know for you having a toddler um it, it, you're gonna probably really like some of that self-sufficiency so um she is just at this golden age and one of the things about her was well, that I love many things about her but she is my biggest fan and and I'm her biggest fan we, we just cheer each other on in everything that we do and it was funny because um Just a couple weeks ago, I did a TED Talk at TEDx Dayton, and I was super nervous about doing it, and I'd been rehearsing and rehearsing and rehearsing, and I would rehearse in front of her. And, you know, I said, you know, I just, I'm good. We don't, you know, just just sit there and look at me so I can have some beady eyes staring at me like I'm going to experience. It's a real talk. And, you know, you don't have to make any comments or say anything. And, you know, she says to me, she says, "Um, okay, no problem, mommy. And then at the very end of reciting it, she said, you know, I do have a few notes for you, though like, you're eight. What kind of notes could you have for me? And so mm-hmm. she said, no, 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 really, I do. She said, you have this one slide that has a quote on it, and that's not how you say it when you talk. I said, I've been through so many rehearsals, and nobody caught that. And my eight-year-old did. And so she, she is looking out for me. And then the night before I, I actually did the talk, um, I was actually on the phone with her, and I said, I'm getting really, really nervous. And she said, don't, because you know this talk. And so she actually started reciting it back to me. And I could not mm-hmm. believe she even knew it. And she was just so proud of me. And I thought, you know, I, I'm just so fortunate that I get the opportunity to be a parent, which is the, literally the coolest job on earth. And I can't believe how influential, you know, I am to her in so many ways that she actually memorized my TED Talk. I almost sent her on stage. But, um, mm-hmm. but I just really loved having her as my as, as my biggest fan and I'm her biggest fan in cheerleader I'm at all of her events and you know going and cheering her when she's on stage for her for her plays and everything and so anyways I just I I just love the the connection that we have and I and I I love being able to watch her grow up and I get to be a part of that with her
0: okay that's so fun uh that's a that's a lot to look forward to okay um I know that you're I know that you're a big fan of hiking so what is the best hike you've ever been on?
1: All right, so I have, t- I have two responses for that. One is the very coolest hike that's just awesome. And one of them is my biggest achievement hike. And I, I, so I like them, well, they're best for two different reasons. So the coolest hike that I ever, ever went on was the Grand Canyon. So I did a rim-to-rim. So I went down the south, uh, south side, slept down at the bottom, and then climbed out the north side. And that was a long haul the second day, 14 miles going straight out with packs on. I um, loved it. It was beautiful. We got to see things that most people will never see in a lifetime. I thought that was amazing. The one that I'm really most proud of, though, is I'm, I'm not a huge fan of backpacking, but I'm a huge fan of, of hiking. And the only reason I really backpacked the Grand Canyon is because I could stay at some kind of, like, fancy cabin at the bottom. But I don't like bringing all the stuff with me. It slows me down. And so if I can get in uh, as long of a hike as I can without having to carry overnight stuff, I appreciate that. So I had a a friend of mine. She and I did a 26.2-mile hike in one day. We went up uh, 3,000 feet, went through snow, and then came down 4,000 feet on the other side. And we left at about 3 in the morning and didn't get back until about 10 at night. And we were just so stubborn saying, I'm not sleeping on this trip. I'm going to make it all the way through. And it's, it's so funny because it was exactly 26.2 miles. So everybody just says, have you ever done a marathon? I'm like, well, it feels like I did a marathon. Um, so mm-hmm. that to me is my favorite achievement. I, I literally could not walk for two weeks. I was in so much pain, and I haven't done it again or anything like it. But that is one of my, my favorite hikes just because of the accomplishment that, that I got to experience.
0: Oh, cool. Where was that?
1: That was at the Rincon Mountains in Tucson arizona, um, mm. so they take up the entire east side of the they theycl enclose uh, the east side of the city, so we started at one end, went all the way up across the very top and down the other side
0: Wow, that's cool that's really fun yeah um, i have uh I've also done a rim to rim i in my in my former role, I used to take a student group to the Grand Canyon must. Uh, most uh, spring breaks and then prior to that uh, during college i lived there for for a uh for a summer and uh and my my partner at the time who i was dating in college um told me to just to just leave uh just leave them there in the bottom of the canyon on the hike so uh yes yeah, so that is a wow that is a doozy. yeah wow yeah. Oh. So
1: that's a, that's fun i can't you know taking some students down there for that breathtaking experience would be really neat to see them and what they think of uh seeing something they would never otherwise be able to see. I think that would be really neat.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, and it was really neat, too, coming from I, – I was formerly at George Washington University, and so it was really neat coming from the the sort of the noise and the energy of the city and how just, you know, just so quiet it is at the bottom of the canyon. It was really, it was really neat. That was a good experience. Um, really okay, Corey, what is your karaoke song? Okay, so
1: uh, – so one of the things that, that most people don't know about me is I absolutely love karaoke. I have my own karaoke machine even. I haven't used it in a while, but I certainly do love it. Um, interestingly, I like to sing rap on karaoke. Uh, now, some mm. songs I'm better than others, but one song in particular that I enjoy is Ice Ice Baby. And uh, a funny story with that is I was um, visiting my aunt and uncle and some cousins and people I hadn't seen in a while. We were all on this trip at this lake house up in New York. And one night we went into a, a restaurant and uh, all had dinner. And um, they had karaoke going on. And so I went up there quietly. They didn't even know I went up. And I put in a request and said, I want to sing Ice Ice Baby. So they called me up and I started singing. it, And my whole family was just staring at me, even my mom, who, you know, who knows me quite well, just watching me sing this. So there's an adjacent room to this restaurant, and these people, the patrons and the servers started coming in from the other room saying, "Who in the world is singing ice ice baby?" So I had this whole standing room of people uh watching me sing ice ice baby so um any chance I can get to sing um to sing rap on karaoke, I absolutely love it. It's just a lot, a lot of fun
0: okay awesome awesome i' have a I have a friend who uh his go-to uh, karaoke song is slow James" by kanye and he's the kind of person who either doesn't do something or he does it a thousand percent and that's like i don't know i can't imagine a harder uh a harder karaoke song because there's just like a huge like super fast rap segment but he uh only only does things a hundred percent so he learned that i don't know if he can still do it but he was very proud of himself once he learned it so. oh that is really cool i'm envious of that yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, so I know you're pretty handy. What is the most impressive thing you fixed around your house?
1: So I'm not sure if this comes from a place of perfectionism or just sheer control, but I've decided to learn as much as I can about fixing my own stuff. Um, so you know, a couple Home Depot classes, and I'm practically you know built half my house. So. Um, kind of, kind of cool. But my most, I'd probably say my most proud thing was actually just this summer. I had, um, I wanted to build like, I had an adjacent um, patio to my house and um, it was just rotting and it was um, completely falling apart. And, um, I got a bunch of quotes for people to come in and rebuild the whole thing, and I was like, "You've got to be kidding me! Uh-uh, no way!" So um, I solicited the help of two others and went down and got our um, our wood, and we measured it and made it to code and everything, and put an entire um, patio structure on with a whole roof. With the, I mean, I mean the tar and the, you know, the roof, the rooftop, and you know, all the flashing, everything you're supposed to do. Like it wasn't uh, sort of a half job. If you would come in, you'd probably think it was done by a professional, and um, I was just. Super pleased with being able to accomplish something um, myself without having to be dependent on the, the knowledge and skills of other people and so i 'm always trying to learn how to fix things and, and so that I can, I can do them on my own i 'm a pretty good tiler I can tile lots of stuff, which is really good and I have tile a, a lot of areas of my, my current house, my former house so I, I really enjoy um, fixing things up especially when i when I know what i 'm doing um, other times i don 't. I tried to build a gate in my backyard this summer and It took about three times longer than it should have because I just didn't measure it right. And so, you know, I guess that's what you have to start somewhere, right? And so I just wouldn't give up, wouldn't give up. I'm not, I'm just, we're going to keep doing it. Take the gate apart, put it back together. So I was actually quite proud of that once that was done as well. So it was a good summer in terms of uh, fixed up stuff around the house.
0: Mm, Wow. You you said to me in our prep that you were pretty handy. I think you were just very handy. I would switch pretty to very. You built your own patio? (laughs) That's amazing. Yeah, it was actually really cool. Wow. Okay, so uh, what my uh, my uh, dear uh, dear colleague and friend, uh, Morgan, who produces this podcast, says is our signature question, uh, present company notwithstanding, what is the best book about leadership? Oh,
1: hands down, Animal Farm by George Orwell. Love it. Hmm. Love it. Um, it's not oh. a book that's like designed to be about leadership. I mean, it was. It was. I mean, it's a novel actually, and um, amazing, amazing book. I actually in a former class that was more appropriate for for them reading, and I had them read it as their their um, text for the class because I really think that it talks about ethics and power and uh, you know collective behavior and all sorts of things. I mean, it really is about leadership in so many aspects. And it's about leadership gone wrong. And we don't talk enough about that. We always talk about leadership gone right. And we give students all the strategies to do it right. And we read about really great leaders. Um, But how often do we really look at leadership gone wrong? And um, for me, I think it's an incredibly powerful book. I've probably read it 50 times. I love it. My, My personal copy is just completely worn thin. Um, but yeah, hands down, the very best book about leadership, Animal Farm.
0: Great. Okay. All right. So for the last portion of this segment, I'm going to have you uh, open, up the, open up the Gripes tab here. Tell me about, uh, about your gripe with folks who are inefficient in the airport.
1: Oh goodness! Well, I travel so much nowadays that you know I've got it down pat. I got, finally got TSA precheck, which I was reluctant to do. Um, for all sorts of reasons related to social justice and not buying my way to the front of the line. But after I almost missed the flight, I decided, you know what, I probably should do it um, because I, I need to make sure I get on the plane. But I, but I struggled with that for a while. And so TSA is a little bit better because you can go through the pre-check line and it's like people who have traveled before. But even them, they just have no idea, how, people have no idea how to get through security. I mean, they wait in a very, very long line and then they wait literally until it is their turn to put things on the conveyor belt to take their shoes off pull out their laptops. It's like, come on people, we, we know this game. We know this game it's, and they've been announcing it the whole time you've been in line. Uh, when I was in, in Europe a few weeks ago, they have these security lines where the the bins pop up and they're on a conveyor belt and they're constantly moving. You don't have a chance to grab one and sit with it and kind of put your stuff in it. You have to move and they usher you through these lines and I've never seen people so efficient. It was awesome and then I, you know, I come back to the U.S. and it's like, oh, you know, I've got to take my watch off and take my belt off. Like, like get prepared before you go through security. And then of course, you know, by the time you go to get on the airplane, it's these same people that are standing in the aisle way of the airplane, you know, organizing their jacket that won't fit in the overhead compartment, which it shouldn't be in the overhead compartment anyways. And, you know, and they're putting mm-hmm. it up there and it's sliding out and they're putting it up there and sliding out. And it's like, there's 50 people behind them. It's like, you know, we, we should all have to go through some type of airport training in which we are trained on how to go through security efficiently and how to board an airplane. I really do think it would make a major difference for people. And I get that there's people who need extra time. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm just talking about people who seem to think that the world kind of revolves around their schedule and they take their sweet little time And um, when they have the capacity to be able to be more efficient. So, um that's a little stressful. And of course, you know, traveling is always stressful to begin with and making sure you're going to make your flight and all that stuff. And so being in a time crunch kind of high pressure situation where you need to make your flight and then being behind 25 people that just can't figure out how to take their shoes off in line, um, it, it, can be, it can be a little bit frustrating. I want to go say, can I help you? you know, can I help you unpack your bag? I'll get your liquids out. We'll get you all set. Um, so, yeah, so that's, that's probably my gripe right now. I'm, I'm, I'm constantly telling people on the airplane about all my three or four different proposals for um, entering an airplane more efficiently, efficiently and how I want to, like, contact airlines and tell them I've got, like, several very unique ways of entering airplanes that I think that they could benefit from. And, of course, you know, these people who are traveling have no interest in really hearing my ideas, but um, I always feel like I need <laughs> to tell them to people. So maybe one, maybe one of them will contact the airlines and, you know, we can get some things moving.
0: Yeah, I um, I so uh, a much maligned airport that is actually on this pop-up bin conveyor belt system is the Atlanta airport. Um, When you go through security there, they have those pop-up bins now, um, which is uh, can be uh, it can be a little stressful if you the the folks who are working for TSA there are like very particular about which bin is which person's bin. Um, and I got in trouble for putting some stuff in the wrong bin one time, but, um, but yeah, so that's, uh, you know, but, uh, the thing that drives me nuts is the people who like, as soon as the person starts talking behind the desk are like, okay, I'm going to stand around the, the boarding lane. Like, I just want to be around it. I may be in zone seven. But I just right. want to be around this boarding line. So as soon as I'm called, I'm ready. And I'm like, friends, you are not getting called for 20 minutes. And I don't right. know if, like, are you in line? Are you not in line? I don't, I don't understand where I'm supposed to be because you are hovering around this, like this is going to make some sort of big difference in your life, whether, you know, the sequence in which you get on this plane. So oh, Right, right. But it's
1: not going to leave without you. I mean, you know, you have to hand it to some, to like airlines like Southwest. You know, you literally get numbers. You have to stand in line by your number. Um, there's something to be said for that. And granted, you can pick your own seats on Southwest, but, you know, here you are getting into my all my ideas about how I think you should board a plane, all my proposals. But, I, you know, I, I agree. It's just a cluster. And then the people who are in group two are always behind the people in group seven. They're like, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. And, you know, so, but also the other thing that's really interesting to me is when you board a plane, I like when they have the priority lane and the other lane. And they never have both groups going up at the same time. So why do you really need two lanes? I mean, it it doesn't make any sense to me. You got the one that's got like the carpet out, you know, for priority people, like they get the blue carpet and then the other people on the other side. But you never have two lanes up at the same time. I don't know. There's just so many efficiencies, I think, could be had by people, the airport, the airlines that could just make traveling a lot better.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. There's some stuff that's very complicated and some stuff that I don't actually think is that complicated at all. Uh right. related to related to airport travel. Okay. All right. Well let's switch uh to our to our next topic. So let's get sort of into the meat of our discussion here. Not that uh not that opening up the gripe stab and talking about airports was not uh not why everybody tuned in. But um so I I wonder I'm uh so we've got so you've got this this issue of new directions in student leadership, uh, new directions for student leadership that just came out, um, a competency-based approach for student leadership development, and uh, you've obviously delo- devoted a lot of your research and professional life to the notion of competency. So I was wondering if, uh, in your chapter in this issue, you provide a, a really, uh, a really interesting background of that, of that notion, competency, and uh, related to learning. So I was wondering if you can provide a background on the development of that concept.
1: Sure, sure. Yeah, I was excited to be able to work with uh, Lucy Croft, who we co-wrote the first chapter. It really is just um, both a historical look at leadership competencies and then how they are and can be used in um, college student leadership development. And so really the – this idea of competencies isn't really that old. It probably in practice is a lot older than in naming of it. Um, it dates back, I mean, it dates, there's several different scholars who have dabbled with it, but a lot of people uh, go back to David McClelland in the late 60s and early 70s who basically said, I think that there's a better way than IQ testing to find out if employers should hire you. Um, really, are we looking at intellect or should we be looking at capacity, aptitude, Things. Uh, are, do you have the ability to be able to perform in a certain way rather than do you have this uh, you know, numerical quotient of, of, a, of intellect and so he really he really kind of explored that idea or at least put it out there for people to to grapple with so competencies were, were born they were look they were more around performance measures um, but then it wasn't until the late 90s early 2000s that we really saw a, a, a movement of leadership competency specifically rather than technical competencies. so for instance uh, you know someone who uh you know draws blood would need the technical competency of being able to actually draw the blood and make sure that, you know, it's, it's done correctly and, you, and safely and those kinds of things. But there is a leadership competency associated with that, as people are, you know, many people are nervous about having, you know, blood drawn, and um, the person who's drawing it could benefit from good communication, clear communication, and good bedside manner. So there are um, elements of leadership <clears throat> that are basically built into um, a lot of the things that we imagine is only technical for a very long time. And so... With that, um, you know, leadership competencies are now in a lot of businesses, especially corporate models. Disney has a, a really neat, um, neat leadership competency model, but you'll see them in big businesses where you know the competencies are used to. Uh, to train people, so you know, these are competencies you need to be successful and then you know, measure and evaluate their, their development and performance with them. Um, it, it's also very common to find them in professional associations. So if you, you know, you're going to be a part of a particular association, like the Society for Human Resource Management has a really great competency model that they basically say, here are the competencies of professionals in this field. It doesn't matter where you work, but you're going to need to be able to develop and, and you know, be proficient in these areas. And so it's, it's fairly common. Um, nowadays to see them in um, kind of the outside of of higher education, specifically looking at leadership competencies. But uh, in our chapter, we talk a lot about how do we use those as developmental um, milestones or benchmarks for students when they're developing the competencies they might need for a a future career or even for their own academic success and retention at the institution.
0: Okay, great. And... uh, are competencies something that one achieves? So it's you know a moment where you are competent in you know x x thing, or are they a dynamic measure of progress?
1: Um, it probably depends on who you ask. I would say, in some senses, comp- competency models in much of the business world, many of them are a little bit of both. Um, this idea that you want you want your employees to develop and grow, but you also want them to have some sort of performance-based, as much as I don't like the word, but this idea of mastery, right? You want to see them perform at a high level in the competencies required for their jobs. If not, you have basically an employee who's not doing what needs to be done in order to effectively perform that job. In a a higher education setting where we're, we're looking at working with students, I always, always, always veer away from any kind of allusion to mastery i don't i'm not sure that mastery is even attainable after college but um certainly while they're in college i i would i would hope that our experiences basically help students develop and enhance competencies that maybe just help them be just a little bit more proficient than they were before participating in whatever we're offering so You know, a student who can, you know, have a really difficult time facilitating a meeting might get some training and some development on that and then some practice. And then perhaps, you know, after a year of doing that with their organization, they might be better at facilitating meetings than they were before. They might not be a master facilitator, whatever that would look like, but they're better than they were before. And I think that's what our job is as college student leadership educators is to help students develop and enhance from where they started you know, so that by the time that we're, we're leaving them at graduation, they're just a little bit more proficient than they were before they met us.
0: Okay, awesome. And what led you – so obviously that's, that's some background there. Um, and, you know, we just mentioned that you're, you're really well known for, for uh, a guidebook related to student leadership competencies, and now there's this new directions for student leadership issue, which is, uh, which is really exciting and has great information. What led you – two competencies, you personally, as a measure for student leadership development?
1: Yeah, actually, it was sort of a a roundabout uh, path to get there. Um, It was in 2008, I had just hired an entirely new staff in my leadership office, and we had just um, been able to uh, contract with a company called OrgSync. And they were going to. with OrgSync, we were going to be able to move all of our student evaluations online for the first time we had been doing paper and pencil. And so my new staff, I looked around and said, hey, we've got this big thing we need to do. We only have a couple weeks before school starts. So let's move all of our evaluations online. Does anybody you know, want to help me? I mean, this is a great time for us not to just move them online, but to really kind of think about what we want to ask students. So I had one of my um, one of my colleagues. He said, "Sure, I'll help out." And um, and after we had connected about it, we both kind of looked at each other and said. I'm not sure we can move these paper evaluations right on to this, this online platform. This is an opportunity for us to really measure learning and development, and we don't even know what we're measuring. Like what are these programs supposed to be achieving? And so we had this kind of deep soul searching, and he and I worked together to go back through, and at the time we didn't know they, that we were going to eventually call them competencies, but um, we, you know, we thought maybe standards or you know, capacities. We, we had no idea at the time what they were going to be called, but we basically said we need a list of things students need to know and do and develop and then we can create measurements around those. And so we worked for for quite a while um, coming up with some independent lists of what we thought were important that our students learned in our programs. We used a number of leadership models to help us with that, the CAS standards and a few things to kind of guide our thinking. And then we basically used that as our list of what eventually became called competencies. And so with the competencies, it was easier to then create measurements um, so that we knew what students were developing. That, that iteration kind of um, moved through time and a couple significant things ended up happening is um, we took that initial list that we had of those, those what we called competencies at the time and we looked at 522 academic programs that are accredited in the United States, which was all 522. Initially, we started with, with less. It took five years, and, then, um, and I worked solo on most of it. Towards the end was um, looking at these academic programs and saying, what are these outcomes and objectives that they have for their graduates, and what kind of competencies are built into those? So that really kind of honed down this, this competency model that, we, that, you know, that I eventually ended up with with 60 competencies. Um, but with that, what's really interesting is that you know, uh, we, it was uh, the morning of our ACPA presentation several years ago, and I, and I woke up that morning and I said, you know, I have an idea for some measurements. I said, we can't just have one set of measurements that measure student leadership development. We have to be able to think of the dimensionality of this. Um, you know, measuring if a student knows something is really different than measuring if they believe that it's important, which is also different than measuring if they have the ability to do it, which is also different than measuring if they do it. Um, and so at that point, dimensionality was born. And so um, so competencies ended up starting as something quite simple, just a list of what they needed to just topic areas, you know, ethics or, you know, um, verbal communication. But it ended up leading into um, this idea of 60 competencies all grounded in, in quite a bit of research and then... Um, and then map to dimensionality because that is the part about the measuring for student leadership development. We have to know not just what we are teaching, but what is it we want students to learn from it, and then measure that component itself based on the dimension. So it was kind of a long and winding road, um, but, but very, very informative and very helpful, and helped um, us be able to build better programs, and that was really why we did it. Um, was to build better programs, and then eventually led into a book, and now this, you know, journal issue, and all sorts of things from there. But um, but that was really it. It was a very simple question: is what are we trying to measure? Was really the question we kept asking ourselves.
0: Okay. Awesome. So, uh, something that it sounds like you you mentioned this in the introduction to uh, to this issue of new directions for student leadership. But you mentioned the difficulty in determining the correct number of competencies and that there's this, this very probably impossible balance of data, the complexity of the ideas and fully representing that, and then memorability uh, to consider. And so how do, you, how do you weigh those factors when you're identifying measures?
1: Well, you know, there's, there's two elements to this. One is how many competencies should be in a competency model? And then, how many competencies should be associated with a learning intervention? So, so from a, from the competency model standpoint, I've seen competency models that have basically a list of five competencies that you need in order to be successful in this profession, for instance. Um, some might argue that that's pretty limited, um, and that that there's you know with something as robust as an entire profession, maybe five isn't enough. Um, and other scholars might argue that you know five is right on. Um, there are some competency models where there are 150. Um, and then other people would say that's just too many. <clears throat> there really is no right answer. Um, I, it really depends on what you're using the competency model for. Uh, in, in my case with the student leadership competencies, there are 60 of them. And I was very um, uh, upfront up about this notion that it, the whole point isn't to develop all 60 in every student that you meet. First, not only is that impossible, but it's really not responsible in the fact that how good are we going to be at developing 60 competencies with one student mm-hmm. through one program. The idea is it's supposed to be a, tool, a toolbox, right? And if you have 60 competencies to choose from, when you look at your programs or your, your roles, your experiences, or your courses, or whatever you're trying to embed competencies into, being able to identify a handful of the competencies from that list of 60, and then associating them with the, the experience, that's the critical key. So Really, how many um, in the competency model, I'm not sure that it fully matters as long as you're using the competency model in a responsible way where you're not saying every single thing we do hits every single competency in this model. Um, I would say, you know, if you're doing a workshop, you'll be lucky if you hit really well one, maybe two competencies. Um, mm-hmm. Because, you know, you have like an hour with a group of students. I mean, and and you're not going to have such a great, amazing transformational development. You're just literally just chipping away and and helping move the student just a little tiny bit further on that. If you have a four-year leadership program, yeah, you may have 12 or 15 competencies over that time period. But you know, being really mindful that it's less about quantity and it's more about quality. And having a, whatever kind of competency model you use is being able to, again, see that as a toolbox and not as a holistic map for development. I've had people say, we're going to use all 16. we've mapped them out over the four years. So they're going to do like 15 a year. I was like, that's not a good idea at all. Um, it, it, they're not, it's not like a linear thing either um, in terms of, you know, we're going to do these 15, and then we're going to do these 15. Uh, you know, you may have the first year of the program where you do – 20 because it's super intense, but then the sophomore year of the program, there's not as much, and it's seven or eight. Um, it just depends on the experience. So, I think that it's um, that the, the model being able to select a model is, that's, a, that's fairly comprehensive is a good idea, but being able to parse that model out based on per- particular experiences is really the key to success in using competency models.
0: Okay. So, your most recent book, Generation Z Goes to College, is on the surface a topical shift away from competencies. But you uh, recently uh, found intersections uh, between those two uh, two key areas of study in in a, in a recent release, Generation Z Leads. So, what are some key findings from that study?
1: Uh, well, you know, the Generation Z Goes to College was a book that was um, that's all that has chapters that are about various elements of. The higher education landscape and how the, the post millennial generation, Generation Z, fits into those. So there's a chapter on learning. There's a chapter on um, civic engagement and, and communication and so forth. So it provides a lot of data, um, it, not just our original studies, but a, a number of sources of data that really talk about kind of a, a broad scope of you know what what are some things we need to expect of this generation. Um, when, uh, when we wrote Generation Z Leads, we wanted it to be a lot more practical and hands-on. Although we give suggestions and Generation Z Goes to College in certain areas, actually particularly the last chapter, it's much more about understanding Generation Z and less about saying, here are some of the things you might want to try. So Generation Z Leads was, is really a practical hands-on piece. It says, all right, so because Generation Z you know, really enjoys, for instance um, – uh, peer-to-peer communication. Actually, they they um, get a lot of their advice and their recommendations from their peers as opposed to maybe going online and reading reviews. So knowing that, what does that mean for our leadership programs? And so um, we were able to kind of look at the more practical end of it. But there are some competency pieces that, that lent themselves very nicely to looking at this generation in terms of leadership. And one of them was um, when we look at the value propositions about why students uh, Generation Z in particular, might want to join a leadership program. And um, one, of, one of the main ones for them is that they, they want to know what they're going to be learning and developing as it relates to positioning them for, future, for their future careers. Um, it's, it's more than just saying it's going to be you know, a lot of fun. You're gonna, you know, we're going to get you on a retreat, and you're going to meet great people. Um, it, it's less about the experiences and more about the, the competencies themselves. It's, you know, you say, you know, I know you're going to be going, it uh, looks like you're, you're a teaching major, and, you know, this particular program really focuses on helping students with their, their verbal communication, which is really important as a teacher. And I think you might find that the opportunity to, to, you know, go to workshops and go to retreats and practice and do role plays and all these things around verbal communication will help you increase that competency so that you're better prepared to go into teaching. Uh, these are the kinds of things that they that they want to hear because you know for them getting a job is well it's just not a guarantee uh, as we know and um, and some of them even want to go work for themselves and that's even more so they're le- they're less about um, trying to get the competencies a particular employer wants but now need a, a well-rounded toolbox of their own competencies to be able to maybe run their own small businesses so they want to know what it is they're going to learn not necessarily what it is they're going to do so that was a really big kind of crossover piece for us um, the second one that I think is interesting too is. We found in our data and um, others have found in their studies that many, many generations these students are motivated by milestones. They want to be able to see that they've achieved some type of target and then they can move to the next level. And they like those in bite-sized pieces as you can imagine. And so uh, one of the things that um, we've incorporated uh, into uh, the competencies is digital badging and this idea of associating digital badges with um, competency development. And so I have 60 digital badges, one for each of the competencies that can be tied to various experiences on college campuses that, that basically anyone can offer. You know, any department can work with me. We can set up a digital badge for a particular competency. And um, that seems to, to align really well with this notion of Generation Z and milestones, being able to, again, use the, like the technology and the personal devices be able to physically actually see an accomplishment, such as a badge that, that represents a milestone, and then be able to work towards small steps versus trying to work towards that end-of-the-year certificate. They instead can do something like a badging along the way, and so there's definitely a crossover in the motivation of Generation Z students and the technical component of badging that um, that I offer through the student leadership competencies.
0: Okay, great. All right, so our last uh, question in the segment is there are folks who criticize genera- generational research as being too general or coincidental. You've chosen to devote a lot of energy to that line of inquiry. What distinct value do you place in generational research?
1: It's funny, it's funny that you ask. When I was uh, in student affairs probably about
0: maybe 10, 12 years ago,
1: we went to a speaker that was on our divisional retreat, and it was someone coming in talking about millennials. And I was thinking, oh, this is, this is terrible. You're clumping everybody into one group. And I had all the same critiques that everybody has of generational research. And I went up to him afterwards and I said, yeah, I don't buy it. I literally told him this. And I said, you know, I, I don't buy this stuff and all, and all this thing. He tried to explain it to me. And it turns out that he's actually a fairly prominent, um, well, uh, uh, well-known generational researcher. Uh, but since then, what occurred to me was that um, generational research is really no more than just um, demography. And, and when we start shifting around and thinking about generational research as something more than just pop culture and trendy because everybody can do it and people can write blogs on it because because they have, one, they have a kid who falls in this age group. Now they are the expert in this, this, this group. Um, we would never allow that for demographers of other populations. Like we would not just because, you know, you know, I I have, you know, I I live in, you know, Dayton, Ohio, that all of a sudden I'm the expert in Dayton. Like it did, we we don't, we we hold people to a little bit of higher standards when we look at other areas of demography. But for whatever reason, generational research, anyone, it's fair game. They can write whatever they want. Um, And so there's a lot of not so good stuff out there. As a matter of fact, I'm working on my next book right now with my co-author, Megan Grace. And, you know, I'm looking up all sorts of studies and I'm finding that they are secondary secondary sources so I'll read this very interesting finding and then I'll go and I want to see the actual data set itself I do not want to see someone's interpretation of it so I'll track down the data set and I'll interpret it myself and that's not what that's not what the data said and you know the person in the secondary source is just kind of tweaking it to be whatever they want it to be and um And then people read it and say, oh, this is so fun and so cool and neat. And they have, I mean, a lot of this data also comes out of market research. And so, you know, some of that market research is really good and some of it just looks really nice. And so you just have to be super careful of it. Um, but you know, I, I've sort of taken on this identity of, of a demographer rather than a generational researcher because a demographer is, you know, somebody who studies a cohort of people. Um, we have a lot of demographers: people who study women, people who study um, particular political parties, or people who study particular religions. This is demography, and th- that is what generational research essentially is. The only thing that makes it nuanced is that um, that it is situated in time in a way in which um, the context plays a far major role than it might for other particular groups. So for instance, Generation Z right now are our youth and young adults. But if I were to study them in 40 years, they're going to be our senior managers and some looking to retire. And, and so they, that age cohort right now, we have to look at age and stage. And that's what makes up generational research. Um, I may decide after they you know, kind of um, get out of college, that I want to study the next generation, which is generation, well, for now, generation alpha, because I like the young adult population, and that, then I study them. Or I could follow Generation Z all the way through as they continue to grow up and grow old. Um, and so it's a very, very fascinating um, Fascinating line of work, because not only do you have to understand the group's perspectives and experiences and values and characteristics um, as they kind of collectively look in terms of themes, you also have to understand the context in which they're situated in. Like, for example, um, you know we, we have in our, in our research and a lot of data points to Generation Z being born 95 through 2010. Well, that means that the, the oldest of Generation Z were in kindergarten on 9 11 I mean, that's significant. So not only are they young adults that we have to look at, but they're also young adults who have really no recollection of 9-11 um, and, and other significant uh, experiences and, and um, you know, contexts that were happening or that are happening. And so it, it's, a, it's a really interesting line of research. Uh, you have to be real careful with it. You can't paint a broad brush and say, everybody's like this. Just like any demography, you can point to themes, 72% you know, like this or look like this. But it also means that the other chunk don't. Um, and you have, just like any demography, you can't make broad brush strokes about gender, broad brush strokes about, um, you know, social class or race. You would not do that. Um, I would not recommend doing that with uh, generational research or what, what I call demography. So, um, but I do think one of the things that I do think is important is that, you know, for all the critiques of it is we can't abandon it because it's, it's better to know something than, than to know nothing. Um, f- for example, I think about groups on our campuses. So if you have a campus that has a lot of commuter students, you could say, I want to study them because not all commuters are the same. Yeah, but there's probably a lot of information you could learn by studying commuters and find out some similar issues or trends that might help inform programs and services and policies. and even though it doesn't apply to every commuter student, it can be very informative in helping set the, the agenda on campuses, especially with limited resources. So I always say it's better to know something than to know nothing. And that um, so we can't assume that every single person in this particular age group of Generation Z fits, fits the mold. But we can say that there are trends, just like we can in any other kind of demographic research. So um, so I, I kind of came back around and, um, and uh, you know, would like to publicly apologize for my skepticism with our speaker back when I was uh, – a young professional, um, because I do see quite a bit of value as long as it's done in a way that is responsible, empirical, and grounded, um, and it, and in a way that we um, look at the trends and we don't make um, broad brush assumptions about entire groups of people.
0: Okay, awesome. Well, thanks to everyone for joining us for the NASA Leadership Podcast presented by the NASA Student Leadership Program Knowledge Community. And thanks to Dr. Corey Miller, Corey, if you had one bit of advice to give to an aspiring student leadership practitioner, what would you pass along? I would
1: say uh, one thing that I, I have learned is say yes to experiences. Someone says, hey, do you want to go and help me plan this event? Yes. Do you want to help me with this research project? Yes. Um, you, you don't, you, I mean, you certainly want to have work-life balance, but at the same time, take a chance. Um, I, the co-author of, um, of my book, Generation Z Goes to College, and Generation Z Leads, and our upcoming book was my graduate student. And she said yes, and her life has fundamentally changed, and we were able to do some really neat stuff together. And so, you know, as you're kind of figuring out your place in the field, is, say yes. Try it out. See how it goes. You never know what kind of doors are going to open.
0: Okay. Awesome. So you can connect with Corey at our website, which is www.corycMiller.com, and Corey is also on uh, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And you can uh, and you can catch her at uh, Corey C Miller on uh, on all of those platforms. And the re- recently released issue of New Directions for Student Leadership. Uh, Competency-Based Approach for Student Leadership Development is available uh, now. Um, And that's via Jossie Bass, the Student Leadership Competencies Handbook. Generation Z Goes to College and Generation Leads are all – Generation Z leads are all available via Jossie Bass as well at your preferred online book retailer. And you can get more information about the on our various social media outlets, including Facebook.com backslash lead, on Twitter at NASPA SLPKC and at Instagram at NASPA underscore SLPKC. And you can also connect with me on Twitter at Miles, that's M Y L E S underscore Surrett, SURRETT. And finally, if you're interested in being a guest on the podcast, we'd love to hear about your program. So please shoot an email at AspalatorPodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, Corey.
1: Thanks, Miles.